ordinary people empowered by the Spirit to witness to the Lord Jesus. This is the Acts of the Apostles. For more information, go to carolinesprings.church. Great to have you here this morning. Special welcome if you're here for Talitha's dedication. Um, Dedicating our kids to the Lord is something we love to do in this church. So we're going to get to that uh, just a little bit later on. But before we do, we are going to have a look at Acts chapter 11. So I encourage you to grab a Bible and turn there. Um, Some of you are going to have a translation, especially if you're sitting towards the back. This is how we punish you. Some of you are going to have a translation that's slightly different from the one on the screen and that I'm going to be preaching from. They're the black ESV Bibles. The rest of you should have NIV Bibles. We just made the transition. Don't worry if none of that makes sense. It's essentially the same thing. Um, so, but we encourage you to pick that up. And if you don't own a Bible, take that one with you, okay? That's our gift to you this morning. Um, We're just going to track a little bit through the passage that Jimmy read to you, but also um, we're at week 12 of 25 in this series running up to Christmas um, in the book of Acts. And so I thought it was a good opportunity for us just to pause and sort of look back on where we've come from and look ahead to where we're going. And so we're going to jump around a little bit in the book of Acts this morning. So I encourage you to have your uh, page-turning um, fingers on. <laughs> just get ready to turn the pages. Um, otherwise, just look on the screen. Everything should be there for you. And um, just to bring you up to speed, if this is your first time with us in this series, we sort of, from the beginning, established a little bit of a meta theme that, to help us uh, remember what the book of Acts is all about. So let me go to that now. The Acts of the Apostles, we, we believe it's essentially about this. It's about ordinary people empowered by the Spirit to witness to the Lord Jesus. So this is apparent from the first uh, paragraph of the first chapter of the first page of the book, that this, is, this book is, is Luke's historical account of the early church. Um, but essentially what he's getting at is that Jesus is not dead. He's risen, ruling, and reigning at the right hand of God. And the church exists to be empowered by the Spirit to witness to that fact. So we're going to see incredible things and have seen incredible things in this book. We're going to look at a guy named Barnabas this morning who's an incredible guy, someone I want to be more like. But we need to remember over and over, we need to remind ourselves these are ordinary people like you and me, no different. But they have been empowered by the Spirit to do great things, to witness to the Lord Jesus. So with that in mind, why don't we take a look at this passage in front of us. Acts chapter 11, and uh, I want to start by just taking a look at verse 19 to 21. So it says this, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed, travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. I think Jimmy was spot on the way that he teed this up for us this morning, talking about his friend who's been involved in this terrible accident this morning in the Paralympics, calling our minds to our own situations where we grapple with the goodness of God in the midst of bad situations, Well, we've just read, and and, and I want to tell you, these are the words that I underlined in this passage as I read through it this week. These four 
four words or groups of words. Number one, in verse 19, persecution. Number two, killed. Number three, good news. Number four, the Lord's hand was with them. This is what we're going to see, well, throughout the scriptures, but particularly in the book of Acts. We have this strange, foreign, seeming contradiction, juxtaposition of bad circumstances and a good God being sovereign over them. You remember when, in chapter 4 when we read about this guy, Stephen, chapter 6. Stephen was this guy who was full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit. He was a servant-hearted man. He was chosen, among some others, to serve the Hellenistic widows, make sure they were taken care of. He was not just someone who had hands-on, servant-hearted, kind of practical um, ministry in the church, but he was also a great evangelist and a great preacher. And we saw, tragically, that he was put to death, stoned to death, right when he was about to start out in his ministry. And Luke picks up, again, this, this circumstance, this persecution, the persecution that breaks out as a result of Stephen being killed. And yet, even though these people that he's speaking about have been scattered, that they've had to flee their homes, they're essentially refugees on the run, that they've been separated from their families. Saul, the great persecutor of the church, has torn families apart, thrown some in jail, had others killed. And even in the midst of all of this crap, to be honest, Luke says they were sharing the good news about Jesus. Who got them into this situation? Jesus. How they find themselves in this terrible situation? They've been preaching the good news. And yet, throughout the book of Acts, even in the midst of terrible circumstances, whether it's imprisonment or persecution, floggings, shipwrecks, all throughout, they speak about the good news of the Lord Jesus. Now, that doesn't make any sense unless you have a gospel-centered worldview, unless the Holy Spirit has so changed your heart that you don't count good life, good comfort, good circumstances as being synonymous with good news. Sometimes the good news lands you in trouble. And so through persecution, through killings and murders and imprisonments, they speak the good news about the Lord Jesus And verse 21, as if this is just, Luke wants us to be really sure about this. He says, the Lord's hand was with them. It's very easy for us to think, in my good circumstances, in my good times, when I've got a full belly and a full bank account, and my wife likes me, right? In those situations, the Lord's hand is with me. And then all of the other times when I have man flu or whether I, when I don't have anything, money in the bank or when I uh, hit my hand with a hammer, right? In those situations, that's where the Lord's hand has been taken from me. And we enter into this sort of karmic way of thinking, very superstitious way of thinking. No, Luke says, all throughout, whether in the midst of salvation or shipwreck, God's hand is with them. 
This happens throughout the book of Acts. No matter what verse you read, it never changes. God's hand is always with them. It turns out that Jesus was telling the truth just before he ascended to the right hand of the Father when he said to his disciples, Surely I am with you always to the end of the age. This became very real for me last night because in the middle of the night last night, Renee and I had one of these moments that I hope will be fleeting in our relationship, but one of those moments where we just looked at each other, looking to the other for some kind of hope, some kind of encouragement, some kind of something, and we, we saw in each other utter emptiness. That for, for, in a month's time, it'll be three years that Judah Baden-Smith has been on this earth, and for three years, he has not slept through the night. I think three times maybe he's done that. And last night, normally he is, you know, straight to sleep, about seven, up by midnight, and then between six and 12 times before um, sunrise, he'll be waking up, and he wakes up upset, he's quickly consoled, and that's okay. Last night, no consolation, screaming the house down as if the devil himself was poking him with that little fork he carries around in cartoons, right? Just, it was like that, and we just looked to each other, and we had nothing left. Just dis- that's called despair, right? This is never going to change. And it's not Saul dragging us off to prison, and it's not the Pharisees dragging us off to be stoned, but when you're sleep-deprived, it can feel that way, right? What we need you to preach to us in the midst of that kind of despair is that the Lord's hand is with us. It's so easy to become superstitious, even when you live in the midst of a gospel-centered community, which is what I think this church is. Even when you're reminded over and again of God's unconditional love and that it comes to you by grace and that your shame has been forever washed in the blood of Jesus, we sang about this morning, even in the midst of all of that, it is so easy to start thinking like a, like a superstitious Christian, like, what have I done wrong? Like at three in the morning, when all you can hear is screaming and you just want to get some sleep, it's easy to think, what have I done wrong? Renee even said to me a couple of days ago, maybe we're not meant to be in Caroline Springs. Maybe, maybe God's trying to let us know when we shouldn't do this anymore. Which I think is precisely what Satan wants us to think. The Lord's hand was with them. Let's keep reading. Verse 22. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit 
and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. I want us to focus on this man, Barnabas, for the rest of our time. And I want us to focus on him, remembering that he is an ordinary man, empowered by the Spirit to witness to the Lord Jesus. We're not putting him on a pedestal. We're not making him Saint Barnabas, right? He's an ordinary guy who has been so captured by the gospel that he does extraordinary things in Jesus' name. And I want us to focus on him because I'm, I'm so captivated by this guy. I remember when I was at Ridley College, I was preaching my sermon in the chapel. And during the sermon, I asked the principal, Peter Adam, who was here earlier in the year, some of you know him from his visit here, asked him, who do you, who do you want, most want to be like? You know, when you read the Bible, who's the one guy that sticks out? And I was setting him up because I knew he'd say someone, and then I was going to say, oh, really, not Jesus, right, and, and, and get some cheap laughs, which is exactly what happened. But I was taken aback by his answer because the, the guy that he said he wanted to be like more than anyone else was Barnabas, and I had no idea why. Because Barnabas slips under the radar. But I want to just track through a few passages in Acts this morning that give us a picture of who this man is, and I want us to think, how can this church be a church of Barnabases? Because Barnabas is an ordinary man empowered by the Spirit to witness to the Lord Jesus, and that's exactly who you are as well. So, let's take a look. I'm going to jump around a little bit. I'm going to get you to go back to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, verse 32 to 37 says this. Just give you a sec to turn there. Okay, so it says, All the believers were in one heart, were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land and houses sold them, brought the money from their sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement sold a field he owned and brought the, money to the, uh, brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. That's the first picture we get of Barnabas. Barnabas is Joseph. You know, like everyone we've met in this book so far used to have a different name. This used to happen apparently, okay? So you start out with one name. He's a Jew. He's a Levite. Um, he becomes a Christian and the apostles are like, Joseph, you're not Joseph anymore. You are Barnabas. And the reason they call him Barnabas is because he's such an encouraging guy. What a beautiful thing that a bunch of, a bunch of his fellow brothers and sisters get together and say, you should be called son of encouragement. And what I'm struck by in this passage is that it says, God's grace was so powerfully at work among them all, that there was no one who had any need. See, it wasn't just that they happened to convert a bunch of people who were naturally, by nature, generous people and, and you know, had hearts for others and hearts of compassion. No, it was God's grace 
at work among them, so powerfully at work among them that no one had any need. Imagine being part of that church. Some of us falsely think that God's grace is all about forgiving our sins. And that's its main function, right? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, right? And that's true. It is all about saving us from our sins, but it's so much more than that. God's grace not only saves us from our sins, it's God's grace that makes us more like Jesus. And that's exactly what's happening here. Jesus, the most self-effacing, self-giving, self-sacrificial man in human history, these guys are being made more like him. God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. And Barnabas is just such a man. He is a man of generosity. He sells a field that he owns. He owns it. No one forces him. No one twists his arm. They don't have an extra sermon after the sermon getting you to you know, empty your pockets. No one's shaking him down, right? It's out of the generosity of his heart, put there by the grace of the Lord Jesus, that he goes and sells a field and brings the money for the sake of the ministry of the church. Barnabas is a generous man. He's an encouraging man. He's just the kind of man or woman that we love to see doing ministry in this church. I've got to tell you, the last four and a half years of my time here have been punctuated by God sending us such, just such a man or a woman. Generous, encouraging, self-sacrificial. The last four and a half years have been difficult years, to be honest with you. We're in the, at the moment sorting out our budget for the coming year, and this time of the year is always the time when I earn most of my new grey hairs and also the time where I get the most depressed. And if you see anyone here uh, who's a, a church warden or on the church board, they're probably looking the same, bags under the eyes, you know, kind of bent over a little bit and generally looking uh, a little bit sad, maybe shedding some tears, and it's because we're looking at figures. And figures and this church have not been good friends over the years. This church has, to be honest with you, been on the cusp of shutting down from the day it opened. We're coming up to eight years in this building next month. We believe that God will provide everything we need to do his will, his mission, but that he, do, he won't just kind of spit it out of the sky like manna, right? But that he will bless us with the resources we need through the generosity of his people. That's how it happened in Acts chapter 4, and that's how it's happened in our church. And I bless God for sending some of you as Barnabases to this church. So that's when we first meet Joseph. Now, Barnabas, I want you to turn over the page to or a couple of pages to chapter 9. We'll get our next little snapshot. Okay, chapter 9, verse 26 to 28. This is talking about Saul. Remember, we just heard a couple of weeks ago, Jimmy preached on Saul's conversion. He's gone from the greatest persecutor and hunter of Christians 
to a Christian himself, set apart from God to be an apostle, a preacher. He turns out to be the greatest missionary who's ever lived, wrote more than half of the New Testament, right? This guy, when Saul came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. No kidding. Not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He showed them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. Barnabas is not just a generous man, not just an encouraging man, but he also has a heart for those who would otherwise be rejected. Now, the church is afraid of Saul, right? And with good reason. He is, you know, the enemy of Christians. And now suddenly saying, no, seriously, I'm one of you guys now. I'll come and hang out with you. And they're like, no way. <laughs> That's the oldest trick in the book. But it's Barnabas who reaches out to him. It's Barnabas who extends the right hand of fellowship. It's Barnabas who believes the best about Saul. And it's Barnabas who introduces him to the rest of the church family. It kind of tugs at my heartstrings when it says there at the beginning, he tried to join the disciples, but they reject him. And again, for good reason. Again, I think about the last four and a half years in this church, and this church more than any other church I've ever been a part of, has had people to be feared cross the threshold. Ex-criminals, drug addicts, alcoholics. Just people who don't really fit into church if church is about wearing knitted vests. And, and you know, to be honest, I don't think we've always done the best job of welcoming those people. I think those people are difficult to welcome, they're difficult to integrate. Sometimes we have fears about safety, you know, safety concerns with some people who have certain pasts, sometimes presents. But again, I've seen over and over and again that God has blessed us with Barnabas-like people who not only feel like they should welcome the outsider, not only feel like they should welcome those who would otherwise be feared, but actually delight in doing that ministry. Some of you are just cut out for that ministry, and it is a ministry. You know, sometimes I'm blown away when I read the words of Jesus. If you read through the Gospels, it's amazing the amount of times that Jesus will say something like, the most important thing, I'm paraphrasing, the most important thing you need to worry about is how you welcome the outsider, how you welcome the child, how you welcome the tax collector and the sinner, the prostitute. Like, that's, that is not what I would say if I was Jesus. Hey, I just want to pray for us. Let's bow our heads. I just want to pray for a moment for us. Father in heaven, we know that in this area that we live, there are so 
many people who are hurting, who are from generations of brokenness, who are addicted, who are abused, who are maligned, who are rejected. And I confess that our church has sometimes behaved like the disciples. We're fearful of these people. We're fearful to embrace them. And so I pray that you would forgive us, forgive me. Lord Jesus, please raise up in our church, bless our church with more Barnabases who see the best in people, who rather than experiencing fear, experience compassion and love and extend a hand of fellowship to those. Lord, thank you for reminding us last week that nobody is far from you. Nobody. So please use us as agents of reconciliation in the world. And if there's anyone here this morning who might be this kind of person, this Barnabas-like personality, please raise them up. Please raise them up. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Barnabas, he's he's generous, he's an encourager, he embraces those who are otherwise feared. And then we turn over to chapter 11, to our passage this morning, and we see that he is a good man, that he's full of the Holy Spirit, he's full of faith. In verse 25 and 26, we see some of his ministry. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. We see Barnabas is a discipler. He seeks out Saul. He takes him under his wing. And even though Saul will go on to be this great figure and Barnabas will be largely forgotten, it's Barnabas who first disciples Paul. Everyone look right at me. This is super important. Everyone here in this church can have this kind of ministry impact. Who knows that you might be the Barnabas that God uses to raise up a Saul, then Paul. Like, imagine that. Imagine if God used you over the space of a year to meet with someone, to mentor them, to disciple them, to encourage them so that they might go on to do great things in Jesus' name. Everyone in this church can play that kind of role. I've spoken to people before and you said, maybe you should grab someone and disciple them. They say, well, I'm not really, you know, I'm not a pastor and I haven't got theological education. Who cares? Are you a Christian? That's enough. Some of the greatest examples of people doing this I've seen are with Christians who have only been Christians for a little while. They haven't been in the church long enough to sort of think that they're inferior to anyone. So they just think, well, I haven't read Mark before. Maybe I should read it with someone else. That's all you have to do. I get the privilege of seeing Jimmy and Albert. Albert's our intern. Jimmy's our youth director. I have the privilege of seeing them sit down once a week and they just take a bit of Acts and they read a verse at a time, and then they talk about it. You could do that. 
You know, the, the great thing about this, and the, and the reason you should do that, is that we believe the Bible is authoritative, and, it, and authoritative in, in two ways. Not just it can tell us what to do, though it can, but it's authoritative in that when we read it, it changes us. Like when we read it, it changes us. The word of the Lord is living and active. So just pick up a Bible, meet up with someone else, and read it together. That's what Barnabas does with Saul, and it's kind of like the incubator. It's that year when Saul is getting encouraged and built up and trained and discipled and mentored, and then he goes out and changes the world for the rest of human history. You could do that. Ordinary people empowered by the Spirit to witness to the Lord Jesus. Imagine, right, I've seen Jimmy do this, I've seen Suzanne do it all the time for the last four and a half years. Imagine if we had 30 doing it or 40 doing it, or 80 doing it. Be astonishing. But we've got to keep going. All right, Acts chapter 13. What's Barnabas up to now? Chapter 13, verse 12. Uh, sorry, verse 2 and 3. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Here's the point. Saul, he's about to change his name to Paul. Saul, Barnabas, hear God's voice, respond in obedience. In case you're unaware, our long-term desire, our long-term vision in this church is that God would so bless us and build us up and edify us and make us so gospel-centered and so passionate to see gospel-centered churches that he would train and equip us to plant other churches from here to, I don't know, Burma or Ballarat. But you know, like you know all of the people that are moving in around here, maybe you're one of them moving in into this area. The, the, the rate of people moving to new areas is, is not being matched by new churches, and it needs to be. So what we want to see is a church full of Barnabases, a church full of souls who hear God's voice, have an inner conviction that God is sending them out and then respond with obedience. Set apart from me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. So after they have fasted and they prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The vision of this church is not to collect as many people as we can so that we can feel good about ourselves. The vision of this church is to collect as many gospel-centered, Christ-exalting missionaries as we can so that we can keep sending them out to plant new churches so that more people would come to know Jesus. So you can pray for that. We are. We're praying for you to be those people. All right, let's keep going. Uh, chapter 14. This little incident happens. And I'm running out of time, so I'm just going to read real quick through verse 8 to verse 15. In Lystra, there sat a man who was lame, 
He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw that Paul had, what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian Ly- yeah, language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human, ordinary people like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Barnabas is a God-glorifying Christian. He deflects glory to God. In this context, in this time, to be called Zeus and to have a bunch of people wanting to sacrifice to you, that's pretty flattering. I don't know if you've seen paintings of Zeus. He's a pretty good-looking guy. He's ripped, right? A bit of a mongrel, but, you know, silver linings. Barnabas and Paul heard of this, and they tore their clothes and rushed into the crowd. This is not about us. This is about Jesus. We're not here to tell you about us. We're here to share the good news. We're not here to witness to our goodness. We're here to witness to the Lord Jesus. Every Sunday morning at 9.30 when we gather to pray, the most common prayer that is prayed is a God-glorifying, self-deprecating, glory-deflecting prayer. I remember being just taken aback, I, I guess about 18 months ago, when God spoke to me as we gathered in prayer before the service, and he said, listen. And I listened, and every one of the prayers that were prayed had the smell of this on them. And I was like, man, God's really here. God's actually doing something here. People don't pray like that unless God is changing their hearts. We are raised from the day we're born to be self-centered. There's no two ways about it. It's in your DNA and it's the way that you're brought up. It's nature and nurture. And 10,000 marketing messages every minute are making it more like that for you, making you more self-centered, more self-focused, more self-absorbed, more narcissistic, right? And then in, in the midst of that, the Spirit comes in and blows it apart and turns your eyes towards Jesus and makes you zealous for His glory. Hey, this is a great word for parents. If you want your kids to grow up and pray those prayers and be besotted with Jesus' glory and all about his fame and his kingdom, then you need to start from the beginning because you're up against it. You're up against everything else in the world. So one of the greatest ongoing messages you can preach to your kids is that it's all about Jesus. That's why the mission of our church is to be people helping people make all of life all about Jono. No, 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 no. Oh, sorry, I'll start again. Can we just cut that? Cut that bit out. 
make all of life all about Jimmy. No, hang on. People helping people make all of life all about... Come on. I nearly swore. (laughs) Where people helping people make all of life all about Jesus. You've got to start them young. It's an arm wrestle just to get you guys to say it. You've got to start them young. I was flexing for my kids yesterday, something I regularly do. I do it especially with my son. I get him in a headlock and I just squeeze, flex his, like my, in the crook of my arm on his neck, just enough so he's beginning to choke. And the reason I do that is because I think it's good, especially for sons, to be reminded that there's someone stronger than them, all right? And, um, and I said to him, you know, Daddy, I could just crush you now, Judah. He's getting a bit mouthy at the moment. He's um, starting to throw his weight around, his, four, his, four, his uh, three, three-year-old weight around. And um, so I said to him, Judah, who's the strongest? He was like, Daddy. Daddy's the strongest. <laughs> a lot of concerned people. And, uh, and, and, India, and then India piped up and she said, Actually, Daddy's not the strongest. God is the strongest. Daddy's the second strongest. (laughs) I can live with that. I love that she said that. Because everything in the culture around her is trying to force that message out of her and for her to replace Daddy with herself. Start them young. It's all about Jesus, they tore their clothes, rushed into the crowd. Friends, why are you doing this? This is not about us. And last of all, chapter 15, I'm going to shut up in a minute. All right, chapter 15. A moment of crisis in church history. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. This is a crisis moment. And depending on how this turns out is probably the difference between us being here or not today. This is a first order gospel issue, right? We're only like, I don't know, how many years into the church? And this is already an issue. There is something in the human heart that not only wants to make it all about me, but because it wants to make it all about me, it wants religion to be something that I achieve. And so these guys come down, come down from Judea, All right, yeah, it's about Jesus, but it's also about being circumcised. So if you're not circumcised according to the law, then you can't be saved. Not just we should do this, but you're not saved. And what I love about this, and this is what I'd want to draw out, is that Barnabas is not just the son of encouragement. He's not just a generous man. He's not just a a tender-hearted man. 
He's not just the one to reach out to those who are maligned and feared. He is also a man of substance. He's got some backbone. So this heresy comes along and he stands up like we expected from Paul. He's pretty gnarly, right? But Barnabas, he brings him into sharp dispute and debate. He stands for something. I don't know about you, but I have in my mind this false dichotomy that either you're a tough guy or a tender guy, right? Either you're right or left. Either you're a bleeding heart or you're, you know, you're, you're orthodox, right? Either you're the kind that reaches out to those who are maligned or you're the one who stands for gospel truth. And it's a false dichotomy. Why? Because Jesus was both. Why? Because Barnabas was both. Barnabas is just being Christ-like. Friend of tax collectors and sinners and absolutely unmoved when it comes to truth. Tough and tender. I've used up all my time and I, I had a little bit to say beyond this, but Let me just say this. Um, I truly believe that this church would be greatly blessed if God would be pleased to raise up a bunch of Barnabases among us. Remember, if we go back to the beginning, what was it? It was that God's grace was so powerfully at work among them all. So we're we're not going to have a a training course in how to be a Barnabas, right? We're not going to give out little flyers with 10 points to be a better Barnabas or anything like that. What we're going to do is just keep preaching the grace of the Lord Jesus and trust that as we grow in that grace, we'll also grow to be more like the Lord Jesus. That's who Barnabas was. Please do pray for us. Even if you're visiting with us this morning, please do pray for us. We believe that God has given us a lofty mission in this part of the world. And we need your prayers. How about I pray for us now? Father in heaven, we are humbled by the mission that you've given us as a church. The mission that the Lord Jesus gave to his disciples at the beginning of this book of Acts. We believe that you have filled us with your spirit and we ask that you would continue to fill us with your spirit. We believe that you have given us a mission and a mission field and pray that you would continue to send us out into it. Father, you're the giver of all grace and so I pray that you would so pour out your grace into us that it would overflow and that in the abundance of your grace, you would change our hearts to be more loving, more compassionate, more generous, more encouraging, more certain of the truth of the gospel. We love you. We thank you for all that you've been doing and all that you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen.